Let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8 this morning, and uh, I want to talk about what is titled as greater faith, greater faith. Jesus gets excited and is astounded at a centurion's greater faith. In fact, he makes a statement, and it is as authentic as anyone human and alive could make. He's just amazed. He's like, man, I've not seen faith that's like this out of all of Israel. This is the greatest example of faith. What does that mean? What does that mean? Why is this person that we're going to understand and read about, why is he lauded with greater faith? And what does it mean to have that? Well, with those things in mind, let me, let me read our section. This is the faith of the centurion from Matthew 8, beginning at verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too... Am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Let's stop there. Those two words, such faith, in my translation in the original language, is I've not found anyone with greater faith. This is greater faith. And verse 10 is the crescendo of uh, this section where Jesus marveled. Jesus was astounded. And you say, well, you know, is it really astounded like human beings being astounded? Because isn't Jesus God? Doesn't Jesus know everything that's going to happen? Isn't it all choreographed for him? And so him being astounded must be kind of canned here. No, Jesus, that kind of disrespects Jesus' full humanity, right? To think that way. He's fully God and fully man. It's a mysterious union. It's called the hypostatic union. We don't understand it, but Jesus was no schizophrenic. He wasn't turning the God switch on and off and the human switch on and off. No, fully God, um, fully sympathetic as our high priest, as one who knows and is acquainted with all of our um, weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin. So he's not internally tempted ever, but at the same time, fully human. So fully in that moment, astounded. He's amazed at what's just been said in front of him, what he has just experienced in front of him from this centurion. The centurion has surprised Jesus. And we need to be equally surprised. We need to have our minds reframed by this centurion's faith, but it does beg a question in terms of what is it? What is it? Jesus was astounded by it, just as he was astounded at points by um, Israel's unbelief, Mark 6, 6. He marveled because of unbelief, Matthew 8, 26. Oh, you of little faith, he said to the disciples in the boat, John 14, 9. Have I been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? Well, by contrast, from him being incredulously amazed at times, like, what in the world? These people do not believe that I'm God. Now he's encountering the centurion. He's going, I'm amazed. He gets it. Haven't seen faith like this yet in compared to all of Israel. That's what he's saying. So how do you, how do you square this? 
Um, you know, again, John Calvin said, amazement's not appropriate for God, um, seeing it must arise from new and unexpected happenings. Yet it could occur in Christ in as much as he had taken our human emotions along with the flesh. So he took on flesh. He took on all of humanity. And this centurion genuinely surprised him. There's a uh, Also, a broader context that I want you to see here as we set the stage for unpacking what greater faith is and how we need to have it. So these accounts here in Matthew 8 are healing accounts. Jesus is healing people, um, supernatural healing accounts. And we established last week, God is always healing. God is doing things that we have no idea what he is doing behind the scenes. And then at times, supernaturally healing Well, these are healing accounts, and we learned about the leper being healed comprehensively, instantaneously, amazingly, and now we're learning about the centurion's servant who needs to be healed. But the point of these accounts is something that you do not want to miss as you unpack Matthew 8, and that is that there is a priority scale where healing is important, but it's not ultimately important. Healing happens in this life, but sometimes it happens only in the next life, right? We pray for God's healing in this life, in people's lives, and we want that for people desperately. But God chooses, according to his will, for all believers to heal them either in this life, but for sure, certainly in the next life. When you're glorified, you are instantaneously healed um, of every infirmity, disease, sickness, or demon influence. Everything sheds off in heaven. And so we have that healing promise. But more important than healing in these texts is something that Jesus prioritizes on a much higher scale, and that is someone's faith. He wants you to believe. The world will say, look, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything at all. And if you're only living for down here, that's true because life is hard and it's filled with hardship, especially if you're in chronic pain or if you're suffering because of someone else's pain or you're suffering with a terminal illness. Those are um, life-wrecking, life-altering dynamics apart from Christ. But if you're in Christ, you can suffer and you can suffer even in faith. And you can suffer with people who are suffering um, by praying for them in faith. We have the crown jewel of human experience down on earth. And that is believing in the Lord Jesus because we're born again to believe. We get this. And that is what Matthew is conveying. Believe in Jesus. This is superior to healing even in these miraculous accounts. So we've asked, does Jesus still heal today? And we've been answering that in this text. Martha asked that same question, by the way, being Lazarus' sister. When Lazarus died, she indicted the Lord, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus is going, that's not the point. The point is, I'm the resurrection and the life. Let's think about things in view of eternity, in view of eternity. And um, let's think in terms of believing. So that's what this is about. There's something that astounded Jesus. It was great faith, greater faith. And there's other accounts of people like this Gentile. This is a Gentile, by the way. This is a Jewish book. Matthew's a Jewish book. This is honoring Jesus as the Jewish Messiah to the Jews. But there are hints and um, little windows into God's greater plan to win um, the whole world to Christ. 
We know with the Magi who came from the Far East, a former uh, or modern day Iraq, these Magi came and they crowned Jesus as king, the king of the Jews, and they were Gentile. And then you have the Syrophoenician woman we're going to learn of in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And she said, Lord, uh, even if I can't eat at the table, can I just humble myself and eat the crumbs of the table? And she was begging on behalf of her demonized daughter. You say, what's so unique or special about a daughter being demonized? Uh, That's a joke. Anyway, but Jesus delivered that uh, daughter and it was by the faith of this woman. It was manifesting faith. It was highlighting faith, not just the deliverance, not just healing. It actually says in Matthew 15 that this little girl was healed of the demon. So healing is not of paramount importance. What's of paramount importance is that people believe, is that they have this greater faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to have greater faith? Well, I'm going to teach us from the text what it means to have greater faith by teaching in reverse, teaching what it does not mean to have greater faith. There are several markers here in this text that mark the centurion that are great about him, but they are not greater faith. They are unique to him, but they are not what greater faith is. So we're going to learn what it is by beginning to unpack what it is not. And so point number one is what greater faith is not, Subpoint: it's not because this man was a centurion. Jesus was not astounded because he was a centurion in and of itself. Now, there's three centurion accounts in the New Testament. The first is, um, you know, is one that's here. It's also paralleled in Luke 7. We're going to look cross-reference to Luke 7. Um, those verses give greater detail about what is going on here. And then there's the centurion at the end of Mark 15, where Jesus is hanging on the cross. The, the world is going into cataclysm, uh, cataclysmic events. Earthquakes are happening and Jesus is dying. He's, he's speaking his final sayings. And this centurion, which I'm going to call him the cross guard, he's guarding Jesus on the cross. And the cross, someone hung on a cross, hung at about seven feet. And so this guard is looking eyeball to eyeball into the face of Jesus, breathing his last and is saying, surely this is the son of God. Truly, this man was the son of God. Mark fifteen thirty nine. That's account two. And then account three is Acts 10, one and two. I love all of these. This one is the story of Cornelius, where he was a centurion. And um, he was, verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously. Uh, what happened there is Peter crossed party lines. He saw the vision where he was told to kill and eat um, unclean animals, go across the ceremonial law. Let's reach over to this Gentile. He goes to the house of Joppa and finds, or he goes from the house of Joppa and finds um, this man, Cornelius, and leads him to Christ. So what do all three of these men have in common? Well, their duty title was that of a centurion, which meant that they were Gentiles. Gentiles. They were not raised in church, we will say, right? They were not raised in the Jewish traditions. They were not raised in the Old Testament scripture and tutelage. They just have this striking change of from darkness to light where they believe in the Lord. And so that's why these stories are beloved. A centurion would have been the military backbone of the Roman Empire, but they were not genuine Romans. A lot of these um, centurions would have been Samaritans or Syrians or um, Lebanese 
who were conscripted by the Roman army to go and govern the Jews. So there was interracial dynamics. There wasn't great sympathy between this auxiliary um, centurion unit. Uh, To be a centurion meant that you were a man's man. You were in control and command of 100 in your cohort, 100 men under you. And this centurion in particular was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So, you know, 70, 80 miles due north of Jerusalem um, along the Transjordan. There he is, Sea of Galilee. He's right there. And that's where Jesus is in Capernaum. And that's where this encounter is taking place. So, again, the stereotype was not great sympathy between a centurion and a Jew because of the political angst, and nobody likes to be controlled in that way. This is the extension of the Roman Empire coming through these centurions who are not Jew. They were neither Jewish nor Roman. And yet, these centurions are all, these three are sympathetic to Christ. And this one in particular shows great sympathy towards the Lord because the Lord is the one who's going to um, meet his need. He has greater faith. What is this all about? You know, God's plan is to reach the world. He, Jesus came to the Gentiles. He was rejected. Or he came to the Jews. He was rejected by the Jews. But that, that turn there with Jesus' ministry is an, is an inward turn from Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth where the whole world is invited to come come into God's kingdom. And that's part of what Matthew is doing here by highlighting a centurion. Remember Paul's ministry in jail, he reached the whole, the whole of um, Caesar's imperial guard, Philippians 1 verse 13, in his imprisonment. And Philippians 4, at the end of that, he reaches Caesar's household saying, they greet you as well. And so he was a centurion. He was a Gentile. He was like the Magi. He was like the Syrophoenician woman. He was like the cross guard. He was like Cornelius. And he was someone who had greater faith. But just because he was in Centurion, that is not why Jesus is saying he had greater faith. So that's the first point. Point number two is this. It's not because he was compassionate. It was not because he was compassionate. Let's again look at the text. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, that's Jesus, the Centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, the language here is one of compassion, unique compassion. A servant or a slave was not someone who in that culture would be loved at all by a master. And this centurion had a servant and the servant was someone that he actually had great sympathy for. This was a, um, someone who he was reaching out to and, and on behalf of. And this servant was, the language here says that he was thrusting himself around with great violence. He was in a tumultuous existence. He was, he was in a palsy fit, unable to do anything for himself in a kind of paralysis that was, that was just helplessness, violent convulsions. So he's suffering, he's in torment, and this um, centurion could have put him out of his misery. Aristotle said that servants back then were like inanimate objects or like animals, and this again was a centurion who was a man's man. He could have done that, but instead he had great sympathy. He was not um, inhumane, but he felt responsible to this dying slave. Luke's account says that this man 
for whom um, the centurion's appealing on behalf of was dying. He was in his last hour. He's at the point of death, Luke 7.2 says, or 7 verse 2 says. So the centurion um, goes to um, the source of help, and that's Jesus. It's, it's really interesting because the centurion who's a Gentile is as we see, we're going to see this in Luke chapter 2, you might, or Luke chapter 7, you might turn over there for the cross-reference. He actually sends an envoy of Jews, Jewish you know, friends of his, that he sends on behalf of himself to find Jesus because he had heard that Jesus heals miraculously. So you heard about Jesus and, and hearing about Jesus and hearing about what Jesus could do was enough for him to do this. I don't think the centurion had ever met Jesus, had ever actually witnessed Jesus performing a miracle. Um, I think he's like us. That's what Matthew's doing here. Matthew's saying, look, you can believe in Jesus without sight unseen, without seeing him. And you can hear about what he's done. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, right? That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And so hearing was enough for this centurion to send an envoy of elders of the Jews as intermediaries to make an appeal to Jesus so that he could come and help his friend. I think that this centurion, if you harmonize Luke's account in in, uh, Luke 7 with the Matthew account, I think you kind of can insert the idea that the centurion wanted to sit bedside with his servant. He had great compassion for him. And these elders who went were vouching for the centurion. Again, verse um, 1 of Luke 7, it said, um, you know, uh, Jesus entered Capernaum. There was a centurion, had a servant who was sick to the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Verse 3, the centurion heard about Jesus. He sent to him elders of the Jews. So these are his Jewish envoy, this this intermediary group that are asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him. This is an extension of the centurion's compassion. They're pleading with him, uh, earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. Look at this, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us, us our synagogue. You can see why he sent Jewish friends It wouldn't have worked for him to just go as a centurion. The Jews are saying, look, we love him. He loves the nation. You're Jewish. Uh, He's sending several Jews to the one Jew who could heal this servant. It's amazing. He's saying, look, uh, you know, this centurion loves the nation. He, though he's Gentile, he also built the synagogue. He helped build the synagogue. Do this for him. I don't think that's why Jesus did that. But it did melt Jesus's heart. This compassion is met with the Lord's compassion. Because in verse 7 of uh, Matthew 8, it says, I will come and heal him. Matthew 8 verse 7. I'll come. It's going to be God's will that this servant gets healed. And guess what? Everybody is believing that. Jesus is rerouting his direction probably to this man's home. He said, okay, I hear you. I'm seeing what's going on. I'm understanding things. And I'm now touched by the compassion of this centurion. And I'm going to go go and heal this servant. I'm going to do it. It's a fait accompli. It's as sure as done. I'm making this commitment just like you did to the leper in chapter 8, verse 2. If you will, 
you can make me clean. So it's the will of God. And in verse three, Jesus said, I will. So when somebody is healed, it becomes, it is the will of God. And it's this compassion that moved Jesus to reroute his direction to this home. Now, I want to make clear, point one is it wasn't because he was a centurion that he was declared to have greater faith. That's not a one for one. Secondly, it wasn't because of his compassion that he had for this servant that got him this declaration of greater faith. We can, we can be of ethnic descent, either Jew or Gentile, one way or the other. That doesn't represent greater faith. We can have all kinds of compassion for people. That might be the fruit of faith, but that is not the greater faith. It's not the greater faith. What is it? What is greater faith? Well, this man, thirdly, not only was he um, a centurion, a Gentile, not only was he compassionate, but thirdly, he was God-fearing, God-fearing. And it's not because he was God-fearing that he had greater faith. Look at verse 8. But the centurion replied, this is the reply. Now, the envoy of Jews are communicating. There's interplay back to the house if you harmonize Luke 7's account with Matthew 8. And so the centurion is replying to the Lord. And he says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, this centurion gets something about Jesus. I don't know at this point if, if, if the centurion is fully believing in Jesus. I think he's being drawn to the Lord through this account. That's what I think. No man comes to the Father unless he's drawn. And I think the centurion's heart was under the tractor beam influence right now, and he was being drawn to the Lord, an irresistible grace to the Lord. He's, he's coming to Jesus, and he says, Lord... It's not even appropriate. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. I know I'm in the Roman um, guard here. I'm a centurion. I'm military. I enforce things. I execute orders on behalf of Rome. But none of that really matters. None of that matters at all. I'm not worthy. He's calling Jesus Lord, which means master in our modern vernacular. Master. It's, It's you are Lord. And I am unworthy. That's his posture. Uh, Unlike the rich young ruler who went to Jesus bowing and said, Lord, what do I need to do? What do I need to obey to be right? And then he's fickle in his faith and sin away because he's not willing to let everything go. And uh, that's very different than this man's posture. This centurion's posture is one of of humility, being a God-fearing man under the lordship of Christ saying, I am not worthy based on power, position, authority. None of this is sufficient for my own honor. He's deflecting the focus back onto Jesus. He's not entitled. He doesn't feel compelled to command Jesus to come. He's got the beatitude attitude, poor in spirit, meek, lowly, you know, just other centered. That's, that's what this centurion is manifesting. Jewish tradition would say that uh, a Jew should never enter into a Gentile's house or they would be defiled. The law doesn't specifically say that, but there was this superstition that was held there. And I don't believe that the uh, centurion was trying to protect Jesus from coming into a Gentile's house at all. John 18, 28 in the sham trial where the Sanhedrin wouldn't come into the governor's headquarters um, early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. They would not be defiled. Um, so they would not be defiled. They wanted to be able to eat Passover. All that is just not what's going on here. This centurion is making a point that healing is up to the master's will not up to what 
the centurion is commanding or not. Everything rises and falls on the master, not on the centurion. And so what, look back over to Luke chapter 7. This is interesting detail to fill out the interplay. So he sent the Jewish um, envoy to, to plead on behalf of the servant. But then I look at verse 6. It says, Jesus, um, and Jesus went with them. So he's rerouting and he's going with this group when he was not far from the house. So he gets close to the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I just think that's interesting. Like the Jews, they broke through. They got the compassion of Jesus stirred and he's coming. And then right before a block away from the house, he sends out his friends. So whether they were Jews or not, this centurion had a wide influence on Jews that were friends of his that he sent first. And now he's got a greater, a greater more intimate influence with these friends. These are people who are near and dear to his heart. His good friends, he sends out and says, look, no, really, Jesus, you do not need to come in here. I, I'm giving you all the glory. You, you are the master. Uh, the, the buck, the proverbial buck stops with you in terms of whether the servant is going to be healed. I think the friends at this point are smiling because they know probably interplay back and forth between the Jews to these friends and going back and forth and running back messages to the centurion. They know that Jesus is going to heal this servant. So they're smilingly saying, we understand that you are willing to heal this man, but you can do it from a distance. Look, that's, that's where we are. When we want something in this life, when we want someone to be healed, we don't expect Jesus to physically enter into our house and heal them. We expect his will to be done. Lord, please let your will be done. You can do it from a distance. You can do it if you're, you know, right here. Doesn't matter, Lord, you are in charge. You are in control. This was the God-fearing disposition of this man. He was a centurion. Not raised in the Jewish church, right? He's not raised in the synagogue. He was compassionate. He was a compassionate Gentile. And he was also God-fearing. Like Cornelius, he was God-fearing. Acts 10, verse 2, he was devout. He was devout. Oftentimes, people who are shed of the baggage of church life and they become Christian, uh, they, you know, they weren't raised in church and they don't have any political bad church baggage in their life. They're the ones that really seem to understand that Jesus is all that matters and believing in him is all that matters, not just attending church or not. Though I want you to come. It's the sincere faith of Jesus that, that we hold as the prize here, the crown jewel of, uh, of our experience. Healing was up to the sovereign will of Christ Healing is never the end in and of itself. It's the faith of the centurion that is um, at the center stage here. Actually, I, I want you to see one more thing back in Luke 7. I know we're flipping back and forth, but verse 7, uh, the, the explanation of the centurion is great. He says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. You don't have to come under my roof. And he sent his friends to tell him that. He said, I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word. Look at that phrase. It's Luke 7, 7. Say the word. Let my servant be healed. All you got to do is speak it so, Jesus. I know that's where you're at. No, that's who you are. Healing is not conjured. It's either God's will or it's not. He doesn't always heal. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul prayed that he would have the thorn of the flesh removed. Prayed three times and 
And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. We say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, right? We trust the Lord's sovereign will. Whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. Um, Suffice it to say, the proximity of Jesus did not matter in terms of whether this servant was going to be healed. So again, greater faith is not because you're a Gentile or a centurion. Greater faith is not because you have great compassion. Greater faith is not equated with even being God-fearing and calling Jesus Lord. Greater faith is something more than that. So what is it? What is it? Well, here's point four of what it's not. It's not because he was submissive. Turn back to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. He gives an incredible statement of submission here. Verse 9. He says, For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He was a man who understood submission. This is a centurion. A centurion was, again, an auxiliary reach from the Roman Empire to the Jewish nation of Israel. He understood that to contend with him as a centurion was to contend with the Roman Empire. Uh, This centurion was not um, ethnically Roman, but he was an extension of the Roman Empire. And so he understood authority, understood servants who would do this or that at his command. And in that way, what he's doing is simply this. This centurion is building a perfect analogy. A good preacher uses a good analogy, a perfect illustration, some way you can grasp the spiritual principle and make it real by using himself. And he's saying, look, in the same way that I'm an extension of the Roman Empire, even lowly me in Capernaum, I'm representing all of Rome's authority. In that same way, Jesus, as you walk towards my house, you are representing all of God's authority that's coming to even beg to come under my roof. That's amazing. You are a proxy for God. Now, if Jesus was just a representative for God, like a prophet, then he may have felt like he needed to come into the house. The centurion, if he thought he was just a mere representation or representative of God, then he would have probably said, yeah, you need to come in the house. But this centurion was waking up to all of who Jesus is in these moments, fully human, but also fully God. All the authority as to whether this servant was going to be healed or not was based on Jesus and Jesus' authority alone. Now, Jesus is coming in the name of the Father, and he was submissive and subordinate to the Father and the hierarchy of the Trinity. But all members, all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are co-equal members, co-in substance and eternal existence. All God, very God. It's one God, three persons. So... Jesus comes as God himself, and this centurion is recognizing that he is God. What Jesus is astounded at, because that's the next verse, you know, he marveled. What he's marveling at is this explanation. He's, he's like, this is incredible. And it's the providence of God here. God the Father set all this up. Now, Jesus was understanding the unfolding will and plan of his father because he said i did everything i did on earth i did at the will of my father 
who sent me. And he was being led by the Holy Spirit, perfectly so, in perfect synchronization with the Father. I understand all that. But you need to understand that Jesus is genuinely, in his humanity, surprised at this moment and amazed that this centurion is explaining Jesus in front of these people in a masterful way by using this military analogy. That's what's happening. He's like, this is amazing. This is amazing. I couldn't have said any any better myself. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. It's amazing. And God the Father has set the stage for this to happen. This servant who's in travail is to set up this moment so that this seed of faith can be sown in this way. And so that for all of eternity, we can extol the glories of this story, which is the story of saving faith. Healing and delivering demons are not the ends in and of themselves. The miracle was not the point. The point is placing your faith in someone like this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said to Philip, right? That's the point. That's what the centurion was saying. I have seen you and I have seen God. That's what he's saying. This centurion got what Philip didn't get yet at that point. Caused Jesus to marvel to marvel. And it's all part of the providence of God. If we would just wake up to see the providence of God and the things that are happening all around us, we would understand these things. So the centurion's submission is amazing, but the centurion's submission is not the greater faith. Him being a centurion, that's not it. Him being someone who was compassionate, that's not it. Him being someone who was God-fearing, that's not it. And him being someone who's submissive, that's not the greater faith. Now, these are attributes of faith, but these are not some substance, the greater faith. So what is it? We've seen what it is not. Let's see what it is. What it is, is explained in verses 10 through 13. 10 through 13, listen. It says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This is the greater faith. I tell you. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Stop there. Those two verses create a massive disparity between Gentiles coming to faith in Christ from the east and the west and the sons of the kingdom, which are the Jews who have rejected Jesus, the Jews who have prayed for Messiah, who've read all the prophecies of Messiah, have been given all the privilege of the revelation of the Old Testament that this was the Messiah, and they're rejecting him. And so they're under condemnation as opposed to Gentile believers. The centurion, I believe, in a broad brush way, is an example of a Gentile believer who is possessing greater faith. Greater than what? Greater than the unbelief of unbelieving Jews who were rejecting Jesus. In one sense, I guess you could say, Greater faith is saving faith, saving faith. Do you see that? Greater faith is saving faith. The centurion had 100% faith. Jesus is not trying to create a disparity between 50% faith, like faith enough just to get to heaven, but not a lively Christian experience here on earth. (laughs) You know, fire insurance, 50%, non-faith, By the way, I mean, we kind of laugh and joke about um, 50% faith, but 50% faith is no faith at all, and that's what's sending people to hell. The Jews had 50% faith. They believed enough of the Old Testament to condemn themselves because they didn't go all the way to Christ. 
It's very sad. 100% faith sees Jesus as the point of it all and submits to Jesus. Whether you really understand the Old Testament leading up to that point or not, just like the centurion, I believe this is God in flesh. And then you can backfill and take your Old Testament course and say, oh, it really was all about Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus. Don't believe all the way up to Jesus and stop at 50%. It's full commitment to his full lordship for all of who he is as a worshiper, not as a consumer. Let's not be the Jews who fall prey to traditionalism and religious living and then 50% believe we have to be all the way true believers. This centurion wasn't the only one in Israel who would believe he wasn't at all. We know that Jews did believe. The 12 apostles had been selected. There were followers around that were following Jesus as genuine disciples. Verse 10 says that that he marveled in front of those who followed him. So there were a lot of people around Jesus as Jesus is marveling. But followers are just that. They aren't necessarily true believers. Some of them were. Some of them were probably fickle. Some of them were actually doubting. Some of them were wondering whether or not Jesus was truly the son of God. But Jesus is saying, look, the prophecy of Isaiah 49, 59 and Malachi chapter one, where the nations are coming in, the nations are going to believe that's being fulfilled in this centurion's greater faith, greater than what? Greater than unbelief, greater than 50% faith, greater than Jewish rejection. Greater faith is your faith and my faith. Do you see that? We have greater faith. Is Jesus going to physically come into our house? No. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We've heard Christ. We've seen him with our eyes of faith. We believe in Jesus all the way like the, like the centurion. Saving faith is the centurion's faith. That's Jesus' point. What happens when you have saving faith? You get to go to heaven. That's verse 11. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, many to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're the ones in the kingdom of heaven. Guess what? Gentiles get to have supper with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's heaven. We get to go to the big table. Do you remember being in Thanksgiving dinner? I do. I remember not being able to go to the big table. I remember being lined up with my little tray table like I was in school on the side of the kitchen. And everybody's having raucous laughter and joy and telling jokes that I can't fully understand. I knew I wasn't having the big table dinner. I got some of the same food, but it wasn't big table. We get heaven. We get the big table. We get invited in. That's what Jesus is saying. The centurion's as welcome as Abraham is. And Abraham, by the way, is not a metaphor. He's a real person with real food, real dinner table time in heaven forever. All the men and women of the Bible are real. They're there. They're the, um, those who are cheering us on in the arena of heaven, according to Hebrews 11, going into Hebrews 12. It's the cloud of many witnesses, the heroes of the faith. They're real. They're there. We'll all know each other in heaven. One of the great realities of our church these days is that um, we see pockets of heaven happening after church. I watch after church, um, first hour and second hour, and I am marveling at not only how well everyone is singing. What I mean by well isn't like phonetically or what I mean, volume, volume. I don't care how it sounds. I just care how much it sounds or, you know, how the volume is turned up. That's amazing. Also, the conversations you guys are having after church conversations is happening all over for like 20, 30 minutes. Sometimes I don't get home till 1.15, you know, and it's the new expectation because we're having heaven on earth moments. It's called church. That's what this is talking about. 
How does many square with the few? Well, the narrow road is talking about the remnant in every age. The many here that come into the kingdom is talking about all the people through all the times, through all the centuries, through all the nations that make up the church that's gathered through all the ages. And there are many that will be in heaven because of that. There's always a remnant, always a narrow road, but there's the amalgam of the whole, and that's the many. So what's the opposite of that? That's the sons of the kingdom. Here's the warning of hell, being thrown, being, being ballo, being sort of hurled into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping is the regret of not believing in Christ when you still had time to do that. Gnashing of teeth is the harsh bitterness and reality that you're never getting out. It's the vicious cycle of hell where you are eternally condemned because you've offended, you've offended an eternal God where you would need to make an eternal payment, which you can never make up and you're in your sins, in your bitterness, in debtor's jail, and it's a condemnation to be fled. We do not want this. We want to have instead of hell, the greater faith. Look at verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go. Now, I think the centurion ran out of the house. You had, again, he sent his Jewish envoy to Jesus to reroute him. Jesus came close to the house And as he's coming, he sends his friends out. They're still interacting, talking back and forth. The centurion's sitting bedside. Jesus is right out the door, so he's willing to get up and goes out to Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, go. Go back in. Go back inside. Go in the house. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Listen, what's prioritized here in this last phrase? Phrase, you've believed. And the servant has been healed. You've believed and the servant's been healed. If you believe, all the healing promise will happen for you, at least in heaven. Maybe this side of heaven, but certainly in heaven. We know that to be true. We're going to celebrate a home going in a few hours um, over here in the chapel. And we have faith. We have hope that um, he was healed fully. We know that. It's incredible. We're all directed home. We're all directed to worship as believers like this centurion. It wasn't that he was a Gentile. It wasn't that he was compassionate. It wasn't that he was God-fearing. It wasn't that he was submissive. It wasn't even that he was a centurion. All those things are great, a great context for faith, but he just had greater faith, which is simply saving faith.